listening to Hosted by Lucy Bishop and Fraser Greenfield, our guest this episode is Carter Maguire. Carter Maguire is a 20-year-plus veteran of industrial design working out of Florence, Alabama, USA. You may have seen his work filling the shelves at Crate and Barrel, a personal favourite of my mum's, but today we get to unpack the story behind the products. Welcome to the show, Carter, and thank you for being here. Thank you guys for having me. I'm super excited to be part of the podcast. Those of us amongst us who may not be super familiar with the work, how would you describe yourself to the audience? I'm an industrial designer with over 20 years experience, as you mentioned, and with a lot of experience there designing and developing products for some of the world's most iconic brands. With these iconic brands, that would be like Microplane, which isn't sold down in Australia, Crate and Barrel, which is apparently, I just found out, is called Wheel and Barrow down here. Were there any other hidden gems that you'd like to share with us? We've done work for L'Oreal, Clarisonic. We've worked for Lodge, which is an old established brand here in the U.S. I think it's sold worldwide also. Epicurean Cutting Surfaces, we do a lot with those guys. Quite a few there. How did you discover the field of industrial design? I was always, you know, an artistic kid. I don't have siblings. I always had a really good, strong imagination and always was creative. But at the same time, I grew up around construction. My father was a contractor and a a master carpenter. So like all summers, you know, he would kind of send me off to these different job sites. And I learned to build homes from the ground up and learned to paint and, you know, historic renovations, that sort of thing. So I was always really kind of drawn to the uh, blueprints, no pun intended, you know, I was a kid that always loved to draw and, you know, loved art and everything. So always like really looking at the drawings, especially the elevations and thought that was all really cool. And I kind of found myself in a drafting class freshman year of high school. That really kind of set me off on my path. We kind of worked through mechanical design, architectural drawings, and, you know, I always enjoyed that. So it kind of led to a passion for architecture. I thought, well, that would be my path, and I was going to be an architect. I was actually headed to Auburn University, and I thought it was probably a good idea if I actually would do a little bit of internship before I started. And so started working with a local architecture firm, and keep in mind, I was from a small town in Alabama, never really been anywhere. So after being there for a little bit, I was like, gosh, is this it? You've got all these architects sitting around in these cubicles and they're not really interacting with each other and it's kind of quiet on the daily and no one's even like cutting up or joking around or anything. That was kind of always in my mind and here I am ready to kind of get out in the world and make a little money and all that kind of stuff and you know excited about going off to college and one of the partners in the firm pulls up in a new Chevrolet Tracker. Everybody's super excited for this little SUV, and they're standing around the parking lot, ooing and aahing. And again, I was like, is this it? Is this what I'm going to come back to? I'm going to go to architecture school for five years, and this is going to be my life. And so I was already kind of questioning things. And one day I came into the office and sat down behind my desk, and someone had laid a magazine on my drafting table, and on the cover was Philippe Stark's WW Stool. And I was just like, oh, wow, what is this thing? I had never really seen anything like it. At that time, it was so different, completely organic in shape, you know, the curves and flowing lines everywhere, just 
had not really seen anything quite like it. Of course, I read the article and it was kind of the first time I ever saw the words industrial design. And I was just like, wow, this is it. This is exactly what I want to do. I just never knew what it was called. Luckily, Auburn that I was heading off to college to actually had an industrial design program. Wasn't even aware of it. So I actually switched majors out of architecture into industrial design before I actually even started. And I can remember my parents saying, you know, what in the world, you know, you're going to be able to even make money at this. There's quite a leap from all these years talking about architecture, going to be an architect to making the switch over into industrial design. So it all kind of worked out, I guess. I was going to say, a Chevrolet tracker is not a good looking car. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a young guy, you know, aspirations. I'm like, where's the luxury vehicles? Where's the Mercedes and the Beamers and stuff? I mean, that's the kind of thing I want to, you know, go achieve. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to college for five years to get this car at the end of my career. <laughs> I guess because the guy was a partner, you know, everyone's kind of standing in the parking lot cheering for this guy. And I'm just, you know, standing in the back going, gosh, so this is... They're like, boss, you definitely made the right decision. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I was just, oh, man, I don't know if this is the life that I wanted. So I owe a lot to Philippe Stark and the WW stool. Really completely changed my life, actually, seeing that object. Do you own one now? You know, they actually never went into full production, but I do have one of the Vitra, one of the miniature models. Oh, how special. Yeah, it is. It is, actually. I would love to have an object that was the thing that connected me to, like, this entire new world. How special. Yes, I know. I know. I feel like what you said about being an only child and growing up with a master craftsman parent was really relatable to me as well. Like I grew up on my dad's job site and I don't know about you, but growing up, I would always have an ongoing project at the job site. Yes. And I remember being like eight and trying to build these chairs and I would always get my dad's like contractors to help and I'd have this vision. I'd be like, we're going to do this. And then I would sit on it at lunch break. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I would kind of gather up scraps and stuff. And, and back in the day, I was an old school skateboarder. And so man, I had every type of ramp, experimental ramps. I was just building everything that I could to see what I could skate and actually survive. <laughs> yeah, right. Even before that, I would build different types of forts, for a lack of a better term, but just different pieces almost sculptural type things to climb on and hang out in and, and that sort of thing. So I was the same. I was always around it. And when I actually toured the industrial design department, the weekend that I went down and walked through, you know, there was these hand renderings all over the walls and prototypes everywhere. And some of the students were walking around just covered in this foam dust. Yeah, foam that I would dust. soon to find, you know, <laughs> soon to come to realize exactly what all that was. People were covered, like their hands were covered in spray paint. And I was like, gosh, I, I was built for this. You know, I, I, my whole life had been tracking towards industrial design. I had just not discovered it up until this point. Can't relate more. <laughs> I think there are still pieces of blue foam in various parts of my house from my brother doing the same stuff. It would be my contribution as well. <laughs> <laughs> so correct me if I'm wrong, Carter. You started your own firm in 2006, about eight years after graduating. What was the catalyst for that decision? 
So at that time, I was actually working for a housewares company. It was kind of my introduction into housewares. And I was there for about seven years. I was the director of design at this point. Really just kind of a fancy title for I did it all, right? The design, prototyping, vendor liaisons, trade show presence. I mean, the list goes on and on, which was great because I got a lot of experience and knowledge in all areas of business. A hard crash course seven, eight years in after college. During that time, the company started winning design awards. The business was growing. We were putting out a lot of innovative products. Sales were doubling. Almost each year, thanks to who is now my wife, she was the national sales manager at the time. So we were kind of like this duo. A power couple. Yeah, it was really cool. And so we were becoming kind of well-known in the industry. There were several other housewares manufacturers that we had become really good friends with. There was recognition happening from buyers, from pretty major players in the industry. There was this period of time where we started getting invited to these dinners of other manufacturers and other companies. It all kind of seemed to happen in one year there, late 2005, early 2006. We'd be at these trade shows or different events, and we found ourselves one night. I'm at one end of the table, and my wife, Brandy, she was at the other end, and these companies are trying to hire us. I was texting her discreetly under the table. I was like, are you getting job offers? And she was like, yeah. I was like, you know, where are you up to? Because this is all starting to sound really nice, you know? So we started to kind of feel like this demand a little bit. And it wasn't just this one. It was multiple companies. And the thought occurred to us, why should we leave what we're doing now and just move to Seattle or Chicago or New York? which potentially could be just a lateral move in the design world, just kind of doing it for another company, maybe some growth, maybe a little bit bump in salary or whatever it might be. And so we're like, why don't we float the idea if we started on design firm, would they still be interested in working with us? And almost all of them said, just let us know when you open the doors. That's incredible. So were you just starting your firm like under the table texting and then you proposed this idea? Yeah, well, actually, actually, no, no, we were still kind of at these dinners, kind of being wooed, if you will, by these different companies asking us, do we love trees? Do you like the Pacific Northwest? (laughs) (laughs) You could bring your pet to work. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. All this kind of stuff, you know, they understood that we're obviously from the South and can you handle Northeastern winters and stuff? And so, you know, it just kind of became clear that we could actually do this. We could actually start something. There's a lot of interest there in working with us. And it just worked out. Like I said, everyone was very interested and we kind of had built-in clients from day one. It was just quite a ride ever since. What do you think it was that your particular partnership was doing differently than everybody else that got so much attention? Um... Do you think it was just like the dynamic duo of having great ideas and having someone who really understands how to sell them? Or do you think you were ahead of the curve in a way? Or was it just a track record of being able to develop these products to market on schedule in an aesthetic that people find compelling? Actually, I think it's a combination of all those things. We were having this really great track record. By this point in time, 
we really kind of learned the business and learned the ins and outs of actually not only designing and developing the product, but actually how to most efficiently get it made. At that time, we were really kind of growing our overseas manufacturing presence. So I was very key in doing that. So it was really just a little bit of a combination of all things. I think the design was good. It was always there. We've always been really good designers, I feel like. But then being able to actually get that produced and actually developed and and getting it to the store shelves and all that kind of stuff in a timely manner was very intriguing. And a lot of companies were actually looking for that at that time. Totally. I think product development is something a lot of people don't talk very much about. Often, I feel like design, people focus so much on the aesthetics, but often the aesthetics will come if you follow the design process and you'll end up with a great product, but it's getting it into the stores. It's having those connections. It's being able to commit to the manufacturing timelines that you need to be in for that season. And that's definitely a skill set that is difficult to learn if you're not at the right place. And I guess paying your dues and something that people really value. You're 100% correct. I think that's really key to our success over all these years. You know, we're now in 16, almost 17 years with our firm. And that was always key. And that was something that I would say as a sales pitch. There were so many design firms launching at about the same time, and they would come up with some nice design and say, here's a pretty picture. Good luck getting it made. And it was requiring companies to either use a secondary engineering source, or if they did have factory connections, relying on a factory engineer or someone else to be able to do that. But also, too, just knowing the ins and outs of actually traveling over to China and working with these different factories and building my own network over there. That was surprising. Even up until just pre-pandemic, there were still a lot of companies that just didn't know how to do that or do it very well or very efficiently. That's where we get called in on projects where we've got this idea, we've got something that we're working on, but we really don't know how to actually execute it, get it made and get it to our customer. They're begging for the product. That was always something that really kind of set us apart. So just walking it back a bit, you graduated university. How did you make your first big break into that initial position? My first job directly out of university was in Atlanta, Georgia. It was a little bit more of a nuts and bolts kind of company. We designed all of the housings that all of the security cameras would go into. Look around anywhere today, they're everywhere. We were designing those housings and I can remember, you know, trying to make it look as cool as possible. And the CEO would say, Carter, if you remove that curve, it would cost five cents less. But I was like, yeah, if you leave that curve in, how many more of these are you going to sell? Because it looks so much better. It was great because I cut my teeth on the engineering side of things, just really kind of how to maneuver within a corporation. And then I just happened to find that this uh, housewares company back in Alabama, where I was originally from, was looking for an industrial designer. I never thought in a million years that I'd be moving back to Alabama, especially to be an industrial designer. I didn't know that housewares would be something I would ultimately fall in love with. It's been great to myself and my family all of these years. We know so many people in the industry now, and they've all become like family. It's been a great process. 
But that's really kind of how I got started. Got into that company, started as an industrial designer, worked my way up into director of design, but really involved in a lot of the facets of the business and learned a lot throughout those seven years that made me more knowledgeable, made me understand business and gave me kind of the tool set there that I could actually step out onto my own and, and create the design firm and be successful at it. We've heard early on in your career, you spent a great deal of time in China. What kind of challenges did you face building up those connections and how did you overcome them? Early on in my career, I started traveling to China actually in like 2000, I think was my first trip over. And, you know, we're really kind of looking and building up factory partners over there. I'd worked with a few of them via fax and email back in the day, but there's always challenges, right? And so it warranted several trips over and starting to meet with other factories. And some of the challenges were as simple as it sounds. There was just crazy travel logistic challenges back then, you know, fly into Hong Kong and then you take a train and or a ferry or whatever into mainland China. And then you're relying on some source to pick you up over there that you've never met before. And, you know, getting in cars with strangers, driving four hours into the middle of nowhere and you had all of that just compounding on being a young designer in a completely different culture. And some of those were some of the early challenges. It's funny, there were trips where, you know, we were in places that there weren't even paved roads at the time. And if there's a traffic jam, they would just go over into oncoming traffic. In the early days, it was just pretty wild. And over time, with technology and locking in on specific factories, you become deeper in these relationships. And, you know, I've been over there for their birthdays. And I happened to be over there during one of my birthdays. One time, you get this sense of kind of family. And it's kind of like we grew up together in, in a certain way, because some of the factory owners aren't very much older than I am. It's always been kind of fun all of these years. But with technology, it's made everything easier. The travel's gotten much easier over time. The roads are getting paved. Yeah, roads are getting paved. Some of the locations that we're in now is just as nice as actually remaining in Hong Kong. I mean, it's just really nice cities now. Everyone's so kind and, and so nice that we work with. And again, it's kind of got this family feel to it. The language barrier after time breaks down or doesn't become such an issue when you're talking technical is, is pretty amazing. You get 12 people in this room that really can't understand each other all that well. And you get to pointing at drawings and making gestures and you can just see everybody's eyes light up. I get it. Okay, totally. And then everything's fixed within a few minutes. Leading up to the pandemic, I would go over probably once a quarter on average. So I kind of would spend approximately one month per year over there. And it's just been a great thing. And again, I think it's something that's always separated us from other design firms. It's good to know that design is a universal language. It truly is. With technology now, and especially with social media and everything, everybody's really become aware of design, right? Like all over the world. It's really kind of changed everything for any of us that are associated with design. Everybody kind of knows now a little bit. When you say I'm a designer, it's not what? Back in the day when I would say I'm an industrial designer, they thought I was drawing metal buildings. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone now knows what an industrial designer or product designer actually does. 
It must have been so incredible to have really seen China grow in such a huge way and become such a manufacturing powerhouse. Yes, it really was and still is. Oh, absolutely. I don't think much is going to change there. We're very reliant on manufacturing there. And like I said, I've had nothing but great experiences. And the people that I work with there are just so kind and so gracious. I've never had a bad experience there. Our China team are just the best. We'd be so lost without them. Oh, yeah. The amount of effort they put in and the absolute skilled craftsmanship that they can do in terms of tool engineering and making any problem we've got, they just seem to know the answers to, and I'm constantly blown away. Oh, incredible. Yeah, I agree. You're listening to Redacted. To stay up to date with the show and see what else we've got going on, be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at redacted underscore design POD. Subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends. Cheers. Looking back over your career, starting from graduation to now, what would you say the pivotal moments were for you? One of the biggest pivotal moments for us was being brought into that crate and barrel fold. We always kind of had a good relationship with them before starting the design firm, but we really kind of fostered that after going out on our own. We ended up staying at the same hotel in Frankfurt, Germany for Ambiente as the crate team. Hung out with them each night at the bar and, you know, we closed deals at 2 a.m. to develop our own product line, that sort of thing. We just really had this great relationship that has kind of spanned over the last 15 years. And as they developed out their own designer program, we got brought in as a featured designer. And so... I've had the opportunity to actually travel across Asia with a VP who, at the time, she was the number three person at Crate, along with some of the top category managers. We got in this really great business relationship, but just really kind of fond memories and a fondness for the people that we were working with there. One of the coolest things was they came to us and were like, hey, we'd like for you to design a full line of VAR tools. This is kind of like something I felt like was going to be iconic. This is awesome. This is right up my alley. We got to design this beautiful line of VAR tools. I wanted to design it in such a way that if you wanted only to select a couple of pieces, they would drop right into your current collection, your own home bar setup. They would look good with it, or you could buy the entire collection fresh, that sort of thing. And I'll never forget, it was like a Friday evening, the category manager called and she's like, hey, we're actually going to name this the Carter. So everything in the store, every tag, every label is going to be the Carter cocktail shaker or the Carter ice bucket. Oh, oh, by the way, you're going to get your signature etched in the bottom of this along with the Crate and Barrel logo. Would you send like a specialty gift package to your mom and be like, Mom, I've made it. You've made it. You named me. This is now a signature label. And you know what? We're making money. (laughs) (laughs) How about this, Dad? (laughs) (laughs) You know, that was supposed to have been like a one season type of deal and ended up selling for five or six years in the store. Just really awesome. And that led into more projects. And then they came along to us and were like, what is the Carter McGuire kitchen? 
what are the tools that you would do like this holistic approach? And so they just kind of gave us this open book, just allowed us to design all of this stuff and what we felt like the needs were. Obviously, there were some basics that they wanted to include, but we got to do some really neat things. So, you know, I, I got this whole Carter McGuire collection and crate for a number of years. And I think there's still some pieces selling from it now. That was a pivotal moment for us. I feel like that's such a flex when you have a customer come into your office and see the exec and they're pouring them a drink and you're pouring them a drink from your branded bar collection. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So wait, does this mean that you're both an extremely good chef and a great mixer of drinks? Not that great of a chef, but I can mix a great drink. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, that's the one that matters more, right? (laughs) Yeah, they were coming to the right person when they were asking for somebody to design a bar collection. (laughs) I feel like in six months' time, we're going to see coming soon from Carter Maguire, the new fragrance, Eau de Perfume. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Only at Crate and Barrel. This is Carter Maguire, and you're listening to... to This kind of came up in work this week for me. We were discussing whether we should have logo or no logo on the product and how potentially in my design director's experience, a category manager will really like a logo on a product so they know it's not something sourced and rebranded from China that we have made and it's had a lot of thought put into it. But in my opinion, there's often a little bit of disconnect between that and the actual end customer wanting to purchase the product. They may not want it because it's got the logo on it. How do you find balancing what the category buyer wants with what the customer wants? That is every designer struggle, right? I mean, we have to keep the category manager happy because they can kill the project. It may never see the light of day if not, but then I feel like it's always our job to bring to them what we're seeing in the market, what's trending. We always do tons of research on every project. We feel like part of our job as a designer, not only to design beautiful products, but to also sell it as well, right? Absolutely. Even up to those category managers. I don't know if that quite answers the question, but it's definitely a balancing act for sure. No, that's great. Thank you. Building off that balancing act. For those of us who may not be aware, what's the process of taking a signature Carter product from concept to production, especially when the factory is overseas and the client is based in the US? Walking through my process, I always start with sketching. Whatever the product might be or the project might be, I'll obviously start with some type of research, especially if it's something I've never worked on before do a deep dive and really familiarize myself with what's going on. I just call it design thinking. I jump in with pen and paper and start getting all of my thoughts out. Pouring everything out, I'll just kind of go from one dirty, quick sketch to the next and just kind of refine along the way. Refine and remix. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Pulling from different ones. My ultimate goal is to be able to present at least around seven different concepts to our clients. Because I feel like that's always a great number to just really flush out every single idea that you may have. I'll always start with that. And then I'll take those selected sketches that I like. I'll move into 
a SolidWorks file, just a basic file that can ultimately get enough detail in to drop it over into a key shot, get a nice little presentation going. And we'll present those to our client, work with them based off of the concepts that they kind of like. Again, kind of going back to your previous question about working for category managers and what they want, we're hoping that each concept that we are providing covers every need from customer all the way up to decision makers within a company. So we'll actually provide all that into a presentation. We'll work with them to work towards a singular item, might be a couple of refinements there that we come back with. And then we'll start working that design into getting it ready for prototyping. And usually when we get it at that level, we can actually start getting the molds quoted, unit prices quoted, that sort of thing. So we can start looking at price, especially if it's a price-sensitive product. It might be where we're looking or exploring two or three different concepts to see what is actually going to work within what they're looking for. And then again, once we move through that whole prototyping process, everybody's kind of looked at it, approved. That's when we'll move into the third and final phase. And that's finalizing parts, getting it ready for molds, final engineering, and getting actually tooling underway. Again, I always feel like what made us a little bit different than some of the other firms that are out there is that we help our clients through every single phase of that. We're involved in every bit of it, and we make it easier for them to actually get products developed and to get those quotes for them and to take care of the entire process. They can be as involved as they want to be. Some companies actually have some engineering on staff, and there are some that are just like, give us the quotes, let us know what it is. We need it by this date. When we worked with L'Oreal and Clarisonic, it was a project where they were just like, here's the product. Of course, they were signing off along the way, but like design it, do the packaging, get it produced. Here's the address to our warehouse in Kent, Washington. We need 70,000 units delivered by this date. What's the cost for it? Okay, here, get it done. A little bit of all kind of situations there based on the client needs. Do you prefer when a client is like that and you have more ownership over the design, or do you prefer working? at maybe a little bit of a more challenging way where you're getting a lot of input from the stakeholders, it's more satisfying to know that you've ticked all those boxes for everybody? Obviously, from the designer side, it's always great to just get a open checkbook and give us your best design. Yes, let's move forward with it. It's all on you to kind of take care of it. From the business owner side of things, it's great when we have a lot of input from companies so that there's some shareability and everything. I really do enjoy the process when we have active involvement from all parties. I feel like there is something really satisfying about solving that problem, though, that has all those overarching criteria from all of these people who are really heavily invested in products that they know so well. And getting that tick of approval is just really great. It is. Some of the companies we work with, their design briefs are beautiful. They come with just some really great information, info that they have internally, very specific things that they're looking for. It is really cool when you get this really well done, very detailed design brief and you come back with designs they were just blown away by. You know, they were just like, we would never thought of this in a million years. When we were writing this design brief, we had 
X in mind and this is what it was going to be. And you brought us Y and Z. Hit it out of the park. (laughs) Yes, I love that. I love it. This is Carter McGuire and you're listening to to How do you convince others that good design is always a value add? I would say that I am in such a fortunate position that the clients that we have and the people that seek us out, they know what they're getting from us. We don't have to sell that a whole lot. I feel like more often now than ever before, people really understand that design is often what can separate a product. A hundred percent. Maybe a few years ago, we may have had to do some of that. But again, as I was mentioning before, with social media and Instagram, there's such an awareness of design. Most everyone is carrying around in their pocket now, right? With the Apple products and stuff. We're all very familiar with design now, and we know what that does for our lives. I think that's become very easy for us now to not really have to give the hard sell on why design is important. Something interesting that I recently noticed, I've not been to Home Depot, but I assume it's quite similar to the version we have called Bunnings. I remember growing up, it was all raw building materials, power tools, exactly what you would need. But I see now when I go to these stores, it is actually really design orientated. There's a lot of people who really care about the spaces that they're in and they want to learn how to design the spaces. They want to interact with those things. And where once it was very much, you're a tradie to shop here, I feel like more than ever, you're seeing people really come in and want to take on that role too. And it must just be showing how the global economy is really starting to embrace it. Yes. At the same time, though, we get... A lot of people that sit in on meetings or whatever that all believe that they're designers as well. There's that part of it, which is fine. I always respect and appreciate everybody's opinion on design, but that's the other side to that coin. When everybody is now so aware of it, they also feel like they can do it too. What do they call that? The bike shed problem? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. If you're building a nuclear power plant, Not many people have that much of an opinion, but if you're building the bike shed, everybody wants to say what color it should be painted and how many bike spots there should be. The danger of the fact that everyone knows what good design is now, but not everyone knows how to make it. Yes, that's right. Exactly right. How did you convince people in those early days of your career in the homewares business before Instagram and by design on the television and such? When we started the design firm, We just really wanted to show everyone that we live design, right, in all aspects of our life. So we weren't just someone out trying to pimp design or just beg for a project or whatever. And so I know in our early days, we were like, what can we do that would separate us from other firms that are walking around these trade shows trying to get business? We're always kind of into fashion and all kind of points of design in our life. And so we would dress kind of funky. Not crazy, always tasteful, but, you know, a lot of pattern on pattern, really great shoes. Year after year, it became a thing. That was one of our marketing ploys in the day. Let's just show everybody that we live this whole design life, which we truly do. It's very important to us in all aspects of our life, including our home, the clothes that we wear, everything. It all matters to us. 
So we started doing that and people really would take note. And we were in one of the booths there and talking with one of the CEOs of one of our clients at the time. And those shows are infamous for design firms being there trying to go in to get business right. So there are always little groups of designers weaving in and out of the booths. And we're kind of standing in there and this group of guys walk in with this ill-fitting Sunday school clothes, <laughs> <laughs> low-key business attire, that sort of thing. And the CEO nudges me and goes, look at that guy's shoes. I could never work with him. <laughs> <laughs> this guy wasn't Mr. GQ himself either, right? So we started changing that narrative and, and people started really taking note of all facets of design. And so that just made us a little bit more intriguing. People really wanted to work with us. And it's just funny, that stuff piled on. Next thing we knew, I got named one of America's real best dressed men in Esquire magazine and one of the top 75 best dressed Southerners from Southern Living. These images started popping up and it just led to other things. I think something important as well, it's not necessarily wearing what people are expecting you're going to wear, but it's also making it really tasteful. Yeah. Coming in with something bold and funky and cool, but not being a provocateur. Yeah, that's right. And showing that you can remix things in ways that other people haven't thought that are commercial. You nailed it. That's exactly what we were doing. We weren't dressed like clowns. Everything was really tastefully done, but it was avant-garde. It was different. It was checks on checks. Brandy was wearing feathers and just leather and just all kinds of stuff, you know, with a focus on the shoes had to be dialed in. Going far enough without taking it too far. Yeah, so here we are, like 20-year veterans of the International Housework Show and Ambiente, and people today still, you know, like, can't wait to see what you guys are going to show up in. I think we figured out the episode title just now. <laughs> Best Dress with Carter Maguire. I love it. There we go. <laughs> yeah, totally take that. This might be a bit of a controversial one, but you've won a number of Red Dot Design Awards. Would you say there's much value in a design award like that? I do personally. I think for some of our more European-based clients, they tend to focus in on the Red Dots, and it's a little bit more important to them than some of our US-based clients and customers. But I equate it to our version of a Grammy, right? Or an Oscar. We have very little of that in the design world. So it's Always nice to have something there to be able to share with people that you've been recognized on a global level for the level of design that you actually bring. This year, we just won our sixth red dot. Huge achievement. Yeah. And so for us to be a small design firm, you know, there's some firms that never win one, right? It's huge for us to have six now under our belt. Obviously, I'm going to say that there's an importance to it. How important, I don't know, but I think it's good overall for designers to get some kind of accolade somewhere, right? It's an opportunity to get dressed for the award ceremony. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I would love to see like one of those Vogue videos they have on YouTube where it's like, Carter's life in style. (laughs) 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 Could you elaborate a bit more on how you're only one half of a partnership? What role does your wife play in making great design? She comes more from the business side of things. She was a national sales manager for a housewares company. She brought that side 
to our business. And so she was able to look at things, you know, that I was designing, obviously giving her input, but she kind of was around buyers and category managers one-on-one for so long. She actually had a finger on the pulse of what they were looking for. Obviously, when it comes to pricing, we were able to do very well. Having her involved with the entire business side of things made life so much easier for me. We joke around that I just get to show up every day and draw, right? I don't necessarily have to worry about some of the business things anymore, having her take care of all those things. It sounds like a dream partnership. It is. It's great. We've got a nice little team making my life easier where all I have to do is focus in on design and creating beautiful products that sell. That's a big thing in itself, though. (laughs) At the end of the day, products got to sell, right? Absolutely. Would you say that every successful team should have someone with strong business skills on that team? A hundred percent. You know, I don't know about you guys, but my design education was some of the best in the country. I think Auburn consistently is top five industrial design school year after year. But one of the things that we don't get a lot of is the business side of things, right? Obviously, at a university, there's core classes that I had to have to actually graduate, several business classes, marketing class, economics, that sort of thing. We don't even have that. You know, I understand supply and demand, all the basics, right? But no one really ever taught you how to run a business. So here I am, this designer that, you know, I feel like I'm pretty good at what I do and I can design a product, get it made for you. I know the ins and outs of A to Z, but gosh, nobody taught you how to manage the business side of things. Even like more personally, though, in my design education, no one ever explained to me how to cost a product or how to cost my time and how important that is and how to actually have a conversation with someone and tell them how much you're worth. I thought good design just sells, doesn't it? I thought you would just work for free. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you want to do it for exposure? (laughs) Exposure, right? Exposure. Exposure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exposure turns all my lights on, keeps my car running. Keep the exposure. I need the cash, right? Yeah. (laughs) You've worked a lot with customers in the United States. What would you say is a weakness of your local design culture? There's strengths and weaknesses in everything, right? Obviously, we're based in North Alabama. That doesn't really scream a hotbed of design, but it's really kind of interesting where we're located is this really eccentric group of designers, fashion designers. There's a lot of musicians here because we have a close proximity to Nashville, Tennessee. We've got Grammy Award-winning artists that live here and a nice little culinary scene, a lot of high-end photographers the really neat creative culture that people just really wouldn't expect to be in certain locations in Alabama. There's this really great creative community here, which is awesome. Some of the other positives, obviously the cost of living here is ridiculously low and we get a chance to live on the lake. It's beautiful and all that, but a lot of our friends on the opposite side of that do live in the larger cities in Seattle and Portland and Chicago. They get so much more opportunities to network even amongst other industrial designers and stuff where I get it through travel and some of these shows that we go to and buyer meetings and that sort of thing. But that's always business, right? You're always having to be on and and you're not able to just connect with other designers and have a beer and just chat design in an informal setting and stuff, which 
I believe leads to additional projects or maybe collaborations that you would normally not ever have. Those are the trade-offs. But again, pre-pandemic, we traveled nonstop and we were out a lot. And so, you know, I I really kind of got my feel. That's really the two dichotomies that I see. I feel like we have that same issue in Australia. There's lots of creative people and incredible artists. And there's so much creativity flowing, but in terms of the industrial design community, it's not particularly tight-knit because there's not that much opportunity here as an industrial designer. Like, it's very hard to get a job. It's very zero-sum. I feel like the people are less collaborative, and I really wish that wasn't the case. And there's also a bit of a tall poppy thing as well. I think that's the third or fourth time we've mentioned tall poppy syndrome and less collaborative stuff. I like the fact that we keep bringing it up because we're forcing home that this is an issue within Australian design culture. And I hope that by talking about it, it changes. What do you think the next level of your career looks like and what skills do you think you need to get there? Interesting question. We hope to continue to grow our business, maintain the clients that we have and the business that we have, obviously. But there's some new opportunities that are coming up, even outside of housewares, designing product on a much larger scale. There's some opportunity there to write some books, which is really cool. It's amazing. Yeah, so that's a new chapter, a new experience that I've never been involved in before. And I think just with all these years of experience and stuff, there's some opportunities we're getting. That's kind of neat. Who knows where that takes you? Would these be technical design books or would they be coffee table books showing exemplary design? A little bit of both, maybe. That's amazing. Can't quite say exactly what it entails. Grace is always saying every bookshop should have an industrial design section next to the architecture section. And I couldn't agree more. No, no, no. We should take over the architecture section. One step at a time. (laughs) Let's just say it is extremely lacking, right? From the point of view from early designers, exposing young people to industrial design earlier on than what they're being exposed to, all the way through to where we are now. And even as more years kind of occur, you know, to be able to kind of expand on the experiences that we've had. A lot of the questions that you've asked today how did we start and how did we get to where we are today? Helping people fill in those blanks and helping the next generation along, right? It's really interesting. There seems to be this really big hunger from the general community for design and consumption of products and this idea of people coming up with these amazing ideas. TV shows like Dragon's Den, I think it's called in America. We have the Shark Tank. And then there's always these big competitions for new innovations. But there seems to be a real disconnect between people thinking that they can have these great ideas and create companies for themselves. They don't seem to realize that you can actually do that as a job for someone else as well. And I feel like there must be a big market pushing industrial design to people who don't know about it as well. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. We've actually worked with two companies that were on Shark Tank and that were funded. And somehow they were recommended to us and we were just kind of involved with the project. Amazing. It is. 
it's a long running TV show. Like people watch it and people are like interested in the design process and the value of products and the ideas that people have. And I just wonder where that disconnect comes from, where people don't actually know what industrial design is. I never knew what it was until I basically tripped over it, but there must be this desire for it and for that content. I believe that there is. If you watch those shows, you rarely hear industrial designer. Never. Yeah. Someone pitching their product, they may refer to a designer, even will say, I had to give them a percentage or something to get this done or to a point here. But that might be the extent of it. And so again, I think you make a great point. You've got people all over the world every day that have life-changing ideas, but they just don't know how to get it there or who actually does it for them. I think it's important to continue to educate our field, right? What we actually do and what we can actually provide people. Again, it's not just a pretty picture that we hand over to you and say, good luck getting it made. We get that product for you. We take it all the way through explaining those steps and stuff. I think it's just, you know, continually it's important. Absolutely. That's a good transition to our next question. Based upon everything you've already said, what advice would you give your younger self starting out? Gosh, I would have to just say, stay the course. The decisions that you're making are, they're good. <laughs> you know, uh, just stay the course, be patient. Things do come. And don't be afraid to take those risks. I don't say it very often, but when we launched this design firm, again, I was director of design. I stepped away from a six-figure salary and to just go do this, right? And didn't quite know where that was going to lead or where we would be today. But I think that would be my biggest advice would just be be patient, take the risk. Everything kind of kind of works out. And to the veterans out there, what needs to be said that's been left unsaid? Great question. I think sometimes in today's society, today's world, we do become pretty self-involved and inward looking more than we are outward. And so to the veterans out there, I say, let's continue helping the next generation of designers along. Carter, thank you very much for being here today. We really appreciate you sharing your story with us, and I'm sure our listeners will too. I really enjoyed this. Remember to check the show notes, guys, for links to anything we've discussed. And until next time, this has been an episode of Redact. Optus advises that the number you have dialed has been disconnected. Optus advises that the number you have dialed has been disconnected.